Welcome to the Suffolk Money Podcast, supported by Kingsfleet Wealth. One of the great things about Suffolk is the variety of festivals and cultural activities that take place throughout the county. And one that has really established itself over recent years is the Felixstowe Book Festival. So we're delighted that we can introduce one of the speakers at the Book Festival, and that is Ian Dale. Ian is one of the busiest uh, presenters, writers and authors in the field of politics within the UK. A very clear Conservatives uh, supporter. Uh, In this interview, you'll hear how Ian's political allegiances do not affect his desire to have clear, concise and open conversations with those whose views are different to his. And we found it a real privilege to be able to speak to him. Well, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk with Ian, Ian Dale. This is, of course, all focused on the fact that you're one of the speakers at the Felix Doe Book Festival, uh, which is a lovely uh, activity that has sprung up over the last decade and it's been good to see the progress that's made but you're going to be talking as far as I understand about um, two of your recent books so one which is uh, why can't we all just get along and the other which is this amazing uh, book on the prime ministers Mm. so what what caused you to let's talk about the most recent of those the prime ministers 300th anniversary Uh, how did you get all those authors together well, it was like herding cats, to be honest, because uh, obviously there, there have been 55 different prime ministers since 1721. And for the uninitiated, that was April 1721 was when Sir Robert Walpole became prime minister. And he became known as our first prime minister, not at that point, actually. Uh, and the whole the, the phrase prime minister was actually used as an insult against him. That's how he took it. Um, but it then came into common usage after that. But it wasn't really until about, I think, 1905 that the term prime minister was actually used in legislation. So it took a bit of a while to catch on. Um, in terms of the authors, it, they're a mixture. I wanted to get um, some people who were a sort of world authority on the particular prime minister, others who I just thought would be quite good at writing. So I got I got a mixture of politicians, journalists, academics, historians, because there were some prime ministers that even I, as a political geek, had never heard of. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Earl of Shelbourne or, or Lord Grenville, but I certainly wasn't. So, and there aren't that many people who know much about them. So those tended to be the academic specialists of, of that particular period. But I got people like Simon Heffer, he wrote about uh, Gladstone, which I thought I knew quite a lot about Gladstone, but his essay taught me that I didn't. And one of the one of the reasons I wanted to do the book in this way, rather than write myself a history of the office of prime minister, which Anthony Selden has now done, I wanted to do a book that people could dip into and if they if they were captivated by a particular prime minister they could then go off and read a a proper biography of them like so I did that with uh, Gladstone I went off and read Roy Jenkins's biography of Gladstone so you've people like Simon Heffer um, several MPs Nicky Morgan wrote about Lord North Rachel Reeves wrote about Harold Wilson and it's just it is a bit of an eclectic mix And I suppose the main difficulty in compiling a book like this is to try and get 
a reasonably standardized style. I thought that would be the biggest hurdle, but actually um, it, it wasn't that difficult. There were only a couple that I thought were, that had to be, um, shall we say, rewritten because they just didn't quite fit in with the others. But I'm, I'm doing a book on American presidents at the moment and I, I've had the same issue there. There's one essay in particular where I've literally got to um, have a bit of a difficult conversation with the author and so I'm sorry I'm going to have to rewrite this completely <laughs> oh dear but I'm you, not but, telling you who it is no so. no 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 <laughs> so uh, just to probe, probe a little bit further into that that's going to be covering all the presidents back to to the start of independence yes, indeed wow. back to back to George Washington there are 46 of them and of course, I know I am a bit of an American politics nerd, uh, but I know less about American presidents and British prime ministers. So it's been a real educational experience for me, Amazing. particularly the ones from the 19th century. Um, I had heard of most of them, but really knew very, very little about them. And you, you discover that Andrew Jackson, who was president what, in the 1830s, have I got that right? There are so many similarities to Donald Trump. We all think of Donald Trump as a one-off, but actually uh, Andrew Jackson got there before him. That's amazing. Um, rather cleverly, and I think in a, in, a, in a very engaging way, you've then opened up the Prime Minister book to a podcast as well, which mm. just seems to work incredibly well. Um, so you're effectively interviewing the author of each Prime Ministerial chapter? Well, it's kind of, if, if I'm honest, it's a bit of a marketing ploy for the book because, uh, it, it, but it has taken off far more than I thought it might. Um, we've literally got, and the audience for this is way higher than I thought it would be. And what I've tried to do, I've interviewed each of the authors about their respective prime minister. And I've tried to do it as a conversation, not, not as a sort of learned Radio 4 documentary style interview. Um, and it, it seems to have really caught on and the uh, people who listen to one then end up listening to all of them. That's so it seems from the listening figures. Now, I don't know how many people who've listened to the podcast then go off and buy the book, but I suspect it's quite a high percentage. Well, I think it just gives you a nice way in uh, for people who aren't necessarily prolific readers. It's a uh... It's an easy way of just beginning yeah. to understand the purpose. So I think that works really well. So just on that subject, and it does link into your other book, your other podcast is For the Many, which you run with Jackie Smith. Yeah. Um, and again, that seems to cover an enormous uh, range of topics. Far too many sometimes. <laughs> First of all, by the title. Um, when we started the podcast in November 2017, um, we wanted to, I suppose, reflect the fact that we like talking about politics, we do it in a very informal way, and we wanted to try and, I suppose, reel in people who had a vague interest in politics but weren't, wouldn't describe themselves as political geeks. So we spend the first half of the podcast talking about the events of the week. And someone said it's like eavesdropping on two mates down the pub on a Sunday night, just talking about the week's events. And that's exactly what it's meant to be like. Jackie and I come from different political perspectives, but in three and a half years now doing this, I don't think we've actually had a row. We, we have lots of disagreements, but it never degenerates into a real Barney. And I think it, in a way it reflects the whole, why can't we all just get along title of the other book and um we, we take emails and tweets questions from listeners 
and, and they can be on anything. I mean, I mean, really anything. It might not be about politics at all. Um, often it's, it becomes a bit of sort of agony aunt and agony uncle type thing where we're giving advice on people's relationships. And it, it, it has its really funny moments. And I mean, one guy started emailing in political drag names, sort of like MPs names turned into drag names, like Wes Streeting, uh, Wizard, Wizard or a Street Face or something like that. And the way he did it was really, really funny. And so he then did, okay, I'll do American presidents now. Okay, I'll do LBC presenters. And it, it just became a bit of a thing. Uh, and people found it very funny. We've done a couple of uh, live Zoom events now. They've been really popular. Um, we raised a couple of thousand pounds for the Joe Cox Foundation for the last one. We charged people five pounds, 500 people joined. We could only have a maximum of 500. And um, it, it's a quite, it's a little bit of a different dynamic because there are sometimes, um, how can I put this, when Jackie and I um, delve into the smut a little bit. I'm recording in my bedroom as I'm now talking to you. She's in her kitchen, I think. Well, that, that provides quite an intimate atmosphere. So you probably say things that you might not if you were face to face. So we try and keep it the same, but it, it is a little bit more difficult. Yeah, but it obviously is at the heart of all of that is the, is the purpose behind the book as well, of this idea of having people who are at the opposite end of the political spectrum, if you like, but you are just trying to demonstrate that actually that shouldn't prevent friendship and conversation and discussion. Uh, was that the, the, the primary focus for when you, for writing that book? Well, the podcast didn't actually have uh, really an impact on the idea for the book. Um, I, I suppose during the whole of the four years of the Brexit shenanigans, I, I'd become increasingly frustrated about the, the level of public discourse where you had people on one side of the debate thinking very bad things about the other and vice versa. And it, it was almost as if people felt that other people didn't have a right to hold a different point of view or they must be really stupid if they did. And that just degenerated into ridiculous Twitter spats. I mean, it was particularly bad on Twitter, but not just that. You had families falling out. You had friendships fracture over it. And um, I started to think, well, th this is not right. Something needs to be done about this. And then the Queen in, I think it was a 2018 Christmas message, basically said, why can't we all just get along? She didn't actually use those words, but that, that was the message. And the Mail on Sunday asked me to write an article about this for their New Year's edition. I had to write it on Boxing Day. I mean, can you imagine that anything you'd rather not do than write a Mail on Sunday article? So I wrote, it was quite a long feature, about 1,500 words, and it got a huge reaction. And I didn't really think much more about it until a couple of months later, um, my literary agent, isn't it grand to have a literary agent? <laughs> grand indeed, absolutely. <laughs> he, we, we'd been trying to think of a book for me to write over the course of the previous year. And anything that I wanted to write, he didn't think was commercially viable. And anything he wanted me to write, I just wasn't interested in writing. So we <laughs> kept going backwards and forwards. Um, and then I read Emily Maitlis's book, Airhead, which is all about her broadcasting career. Basically 40 chapters, 40 incidents where she relates something interesting or amusing that happened and I got about a quarter of a way through this book and I thought this is the book I want to write because I can sort of I've got lots of anecdotes I can write about that can be the hook for a chapter so I rang up 
my agent and said, right, this is what I want to do. And he said, well, it's funny you should say that because HarperCollins have just been on and they want you to write a book, not particularly that book, but they want you to write something about the state of public discourse. Um, so I went to see them and they said, well, we want you to do something that's really an answer to your colleague James O'Brien's book. And I said, look here, I, I'm, if I do a book, it's going to be my book. It's not going to be an answer to somebody else's. And so effectively, what we did was we merged the two ideas where the book is about the state of public discourse. But I use lots of examples from my career to illustrate what I'm trying to say in, in the wider context. And it's a slightly... Um, I mean, when I, if I'm honest, when I finished it, I wasn't sure that I've got the structure right because I, I talk about, I split it up into three sections that talk about the media, politics, and then political issues. Um, and I've tried to write it in a really accessible style. It's not an academic book by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's, I tend to write as I speak, which I think in, in a book like this works very well, possibly less so if I was writing about a prime minister which I have written about Boris Johnson in the other book, but um, I, I've tried to do that in a normal journalistic style. And it's, well, I mean, from all the reviews it's had, from all of the comments I've had from people who've read it, um, it, it seems to have gone down reasonably well, thank goodness, because it was, <laughs> even though I've edited about 40 books, this is actually only the second book that I've written as a, as a polemic, as a narrative. Um, and I've I've never been confident about my writing. I've always, whenever I write a newspaper article, when I press the send button, I always imagine it's going to come back and they say, this is rubbish, start again. Nobody ever has done that. So I suppose I must be doing something right. But um, I, I've always had this sort of imposter syndrome about my writing. Yeah, which I'm sure a lot of authors do have. Um, but do you know who is buying the book? And I suppose the key thing that uh, playing devil's advocate slightly is it bought by people who do have that open-mindedness or are there accounts of people who perhaps have said oh do you know what? I'm going to change my view a little bit I have had people say that um at the end of the book there's I've done a list of 50 ways that we can improve things um I, I did that partly because when I finished writing the text I thought well I've been I think I've been quite good at diagnosing the problem I'm not sure I've been particularly good at coming up with solutions. So I did this sort of checklist, divided it up into five sections of, of 10 bullet points. And I, I've i had several people um, email me or say to me, well, after I read those 50 things, I did sit down and think about how I act in my public discourse. So I, I don't pretend that every single person who's read the book is, is necessarily going to change their ways, but I, all you can do is hope to make people think a little bit. So I, I use an example, well, in fact, it's not in the book, but it, it is an example of what the kind of things are in the book. Um, a few months ago, uh, somebody on Twitter had been listening to my radio show and they wrote a tweet which said, Ian Dale is so far up Boris Johnson's arse, you can't see his shoes. Now, had that been before I wrote the book, I may well have reacted quite aggressively to a tweet like that. But I thought, no, keep calm at all times. And I just wrote a factual tweet and I said, this is not true. Here are nine occasions when I've criticised Boris Johnson over the last month and just listed them. This guy then direct messaged me uh, the next day and apologised. He said, I shouldn't have said that. I realise it's not true. And since then, we've kind of developed this rather weird online friendship where we, we've never met. He lives in North Wales. Um, 
and we, we sort of swap numbers, we communicate on WhatsApp, sort of, I mean, sometimes every day, he's had quite a hard life. And I don't know, somehow, I mean, I would describe him as a friend, even though we've never met, which I know sounds weird, but it's an example of where my previous self would have probably reacted in quite an aggressive way and then probably blocked him. Mm. And you, you've therefore then got two people who are enemies. Whereas, whereas I think we both rescue that situation and have become friends well who'd have thought now i'm not suggesting that that can happen every time you have a falling out with someone on mm. social media or even in normal life but it is illustrative that you don't actually have to go down that road of aggression and falling out i think there's an old proverb that says a gentle answer turns away wrath isn't there and it sounds mm. as though we maybe need to revert to some of that wisdom well, I think that's right. The, the general feeling is, I think, if you're a talk show radio presenter, you're a shock jock. I think I'm the antithesis of a shock jock. I, I try to have a reasonable debate, even with a politician where I'm, I'm asking them hard questions. I'm not shouting at them. If you shout at somebody and be gratuitously rude to somebody in an interview, don't be surprised if their defences go up and they don't say anything very interesting. I had Diane Abbott on the show last night. Um, remember this uh, Paul lady, uh, Black Lives Matter activist who was shot in the head. Um, now, Diane Abbott had tweeted that this was racially motivated. She had no idea whether it was racially motivated or not. So she came on my show that yesterday evening and it was a panel show. But I, I read the tweet out to her and I said, look, don't you think this is actually quite a divisive tweet? Because it seems as though it was a gangland shooting, not something aimed particularly at her. She just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she wouldn't she wouldn't have it. And she it was but she said, basically, how dare I as a white man question a black woman? Well, sorry. It, I mean, if that's really where we've got to in our public debate. Um, I think that's a, a real shame. So you but it's the way you do it. Now, other interviewers might have approached her in a very direct, aggressive way in that. I, I didn't. That's not my style. But it's interesting on Twitter this morning that I'm accused of being a soft interviewer, that I didn't take her to task. I, I went back three times and tried to get her to accept that what she had done was wrong. But because I didn't shout at her, because I, I, I wasn't obnoxious to her, um, therefore, I didn't take her to task. Well, mm people can judge for themselves has that become an issue within political interviewing that there is i was watching i won't name which program it was over the weekend but the the interviewer just continually tried to interrupt so he would ask a question so that gives that that rules out some of them uh, he would ask a question then constantly barely one or two sentences into the response yeah try to sort of interrupt and ask another or a follow-up or or narrow down the options available for the respondent um that, now, I suppose, compared with 1950s interviewing, which was very <laughs> open for the uh, politician to almost communicate their their policies, um, have we gone too far in the other way while we're trying to trip up politicians? Well, I think as an interviewer, you've got to remember it's not about you. And that that is a trap that too many interviews fall into. They think they are the stars of the interview and all the headlines should be about how wonderful they were. Remember an incident on Good Morning Britain a couple of years ago with Richard Maidley, who was interviewing Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, who was, I think, at Whipsnade Zoo for some reason. <laughs> I mean, this was like seven o'clock in the morning. God knows why he was there. And they're like giraffes and elephants walking around in the background. Now, sometimes interviewers have to 
bear in mind the situation that the interviewee is in. If you've got somebody opposite you in the studio, that's one thing. If somebody's down the line, they're looking at a camera and they've got an earpiece in, and often the earpiece is, I mean, sometimes the sound isn't very good, so you're struggling to understand what the interviewer has said. Um, but interviewers don't generally even think like that. And Richard Maidley kept asking the same question. Now, what you have to do in those circumstances, if the politician isn't answering the question, you can go back three or four times. But after that, I mean, you leave the viewer to work out, oh, he, the, the, the politician's uh, avoiding the question. You don't need to be gratuitous about it. And there may be a reason sometimes why a politician can't answer a question in the straight way that an interviewer wants them to. And the interviewer knows this. And Richard Maidley basically ended the interview by saying, well, if you're not gonna ask the question, we won't continue with the interview. And I was in On Good Morning Britain the next day and Richard Maidley was preening himself basically. He'd got loads of press coverage from it because he ended the interview. And um, I remember going on set and he had all these newspapers in front of him and we were supposed to be talking about something else. But he started off, he said, Ian, look at all, this is the best coverage I've ever had in my career. And I said to him, Richard, well, my rule of thumb as an interviewer is if you have to end an interview, it's usually your fault, not the guests. And the look of shock on his face was a joy to <laughs> yeah. behold. And um, we haven't done we haven't done an interview with each other <laughs> since. But I, I look, I have done some very robust interviews in my time. And if I think a politician is trying to pull the wool over my eyes or actually not telling me the truth, I'll be as robust as anyone. But if you just interrupt every few seconds, you've got to think, what is the audience getting out of this? And the answer mm. is nothing. And therefore, you failed in your job. Yeah. So this all really goes back to the Paxman and Michael Howard um, interview, I suppose, where was it the same question was asked, I don't know how many... 12 times. 12 times, Well, yeah. well there, there is a story about that, because everyone thinks that that was a fine example of interviewing. Well, Jeremy Paxman, to be fair to him, doesn't regard that as his finest hour. He only asked him the question 12 times because his editor was saying in his ear, keep going because the next package isn't ready. There's a, techni <laughs> there's a technical fault. So he just kept on going until he could end the interview and the next thing was ready. So, I mean, it, people never realise what goes on behind the scenes. And I mean, there, there are times... Um, I, mean, I don't particularly like having lots of stuff in my ear during an interview, but I had a producer once who now works on Newsnight who was brilliant at thinking of the question for a politician that I wouldn't have thought of. And even though he works on Newsnight now, I was in, who was I interviewing the other day? Alex Salmond. I used to present a show with Alex Salmond, so I knew him quite well, but we had a big falling out when he went to Russia today because I just couldn't understand how he could do that. And we hadn't spoken for about three or four years. Anyway, he was very keen to come on my programme to talk about his new Alba party. Um, but I knew that I had to do a, quite a forensic, robust interview with him. And um, Matt, my former producer, was uh, listening and he kept WhatsApping me throughout the interview saying, ask him this, keep going, keep going. And it, it was, and, and these little WhatsApp messages would come up on my laptop, at, which was in between me and Alex Salmon. So I could see these. And it was a really interesting way of um, thinking. And, and most of the things he did WhatsApp me, I, I did then say, which I'm not sure my current producer was very happy about me being produced by an ex-producer, but uh, it, it did turn out to be quite a good. Well, some good questions though, nonetheless. Excellent. So what do you see as the future for your um, 
for your, for your, I mean, you, you talked around the uh, US presidents. What, what's beyond that, or is that sufficient to uh, keep you tied up for the next little while? Well, I have got the, the, the US president's book comes out at the end of November. And then in two, two November's time, in 2023, I'm doing the same format book on uh, kings and queens, going right back to the Saxon kings of England. Um, but there's a year in between there, and I have got another book that I'm going to write myself as opposed to edit. But I can't tell you what it is, because if I did, I'd have to shoot you. Because it hasn't, <laughs> well, been, that, annou that it hasn't be, been announced yet. So That would be an interesting book by itself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how I shot right. Colin Lowe. Uh, no, that would be, <laughs> um, no, in fact, that's great. Well, it's been lovely just to um, understand something about your processes and your thinking and this idea you have of trying to bring people and encouraging them to talk just one final question is what's your experience of felix Stowe? i've got two experiences felix Stowe. Oh. My, mother, my mother went to school at a girls school in felix Stowe. the girls college this would have been i suppose 1940s okay um I mean, it's presumably a private school. I, I can't remember what its name was. I don't even know if it still exists. So that I have a family link to Felixstowe. Excellent. Um, I also used to work for the Port of Felixstowe as a consultant back in the 1990s when, when Hutchison Wampoa took it over. Um, I was one of the people advising them doing the takeover process. And then I spent about, I don't know, two or three years helping them with their communications, political lobbying, uh, in the 1990s. So uh, I don't think any of the people that uh, were there then were, are still there now. But I got to know, I mean, I, I, I've worked for a lot for the ports industry in my past. So that, that was all part of that. Um, and I think that's probably about it. <laughs> so a great opportunity to, to find it again and see just how lovely it is. Well, I know exactly where it is. Oh, and I, I remember going to a um conservative spring conference in felixstowe this would have been about 1986 i think there's a big sort of theater right on the seafront i don't know mm, if it's the spa there. pavilion that's the one and yeah. margaret thatcher came to speak um i remember being there with a, an american friend who had sort of just couldn't believe what he was he couldn't believe that he was in the same room as margaret thatcher <laughs> <laughs> um that i think that's my only other i think i was memory. in the sick form in felix though at that time so uh, yeah that's <laughs> that a few, quite... few years behind me yeah <laughs> that would have been great well thank you ian for just giving us the time we obviously wish you well with your books and the amazing work that you do especially this uh idea of bringing people together through conversation it's a, a, a admirable well, to I'm, get behind. I'm really pleased to be coming because, of course, this was supposed to happen last year and it all yeah. had to be cancelled. And um, Meg, who who organises the festival, I know what work she put into the whole thing last year and it came to virtually nothing. Well, this year, I hope everybody of Felixstowe really supports the festival, whether they, whether they come to see me or not, because yeah. it, it is a fantastic thing. And I mean, there are literary festivals all over the country um, and they all have their own sort of uniqueness. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to, to coming to Felixstowe. Meg's got some fantastic people in the lineup. Um, so it, it deserves to be a, an outstanding success. It really is wonderful. And Meg is just a phenomenal person. Uh, you know, what she has put on and what she started yeah. is incredible. And, and the, these, these festivals all often do revolve around a single person. Obviously, there are other people there to help do a lot yes. of work, but without the, the driving force, they don't happen. 
No, no. And she's built a great team around her who all do wonderful work. So, yeah, it's been wonderful that we've been involved ever since it started. But obviously it would be nothing without people like you coming to speak and uh, tell us a bit about your, your work. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> so thank you for your time. I've really, really appreciated that. And uh, yeah, it would be nice to hopefully see a nice room for the Harvest House, which is by itself a unique venue on the cliff top above the Spa Pavilion, actually. So uh, you'll, you'll know the area when you get there. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks again for your time. And it's really good. Okay. Thank Cheers. you. So Ian was a, an absolute pleasure to speak with and in the conversation you will have heard Ian make reference to Meg uh, who is the force behind the Felix Stowe Book Festival. So we had the opportunity to speak to Meg and find out a little more about the background on the festival, what's anticipated for this year and how Meg sees the festival developing into the future. It's a real pleasure to catch up with you, Meg. Obviously, I've known you for a few years now since the um, book festival began, but tell, tell me a bit about the background. What, what sort of caused you to think one day, did you wake up and say, Felix don't need a book festival? Not really. I was driving back from the Cambridge Literary Festival with a friend. Um, we'd been to see some things there. We had both just moved to Felixstowe a few months before. And she said, I wonder why Felixstowe doesn't have the same event. And I said, oh, but I didn't have in mind what we finished up with. I had in mind maybe a few author, you know, individual author sessions in cafes, something like that. But I started asking people, were they interested in a book festival? What do they think? And also I thought that Felixstowe in particular had a lot of art related things going on. I mean, there were lots and lots of artists and craftspeople with open studios. There was lots of music around, um, theatre events. But I, when we moved here, I didn't feel that it was known for its sort of cultural profile, which surprised me when I got here and found out how much there was. So I thought perhaps a book festival would help to you know, sort of add to that. And, maybe foreground some of the other things that were going on as well for people and attract them here for a weekend cultural event. And people who I spoke to in the community about it were very keen from, you know, people I met at events through to local councillors were all very, very keen. So I started, um, you know, finding out from any literary contacts I'd got uh, who would be interested. And to my great surprise, I suddenly had a whole weekend of, I don't know, probably over 20 events in one weekend in the first year, which was terrifying, to be honest. It's amazing. How long had you been living in the town when you came up with that idea then? Well, given that the festival was probably in, we'd moved in 2000, May 2011, and it was probably the following Springs Festival. 2012 that I went to in Cambridge so around a year I think. So what happened then so 2013 you'd got as you say what 20 different speakers? I should have gone back and counted but no, that's full program over two days. I mean my first idea was to find a venue so I went to the Orwell Hotel and spoke to the then manager who was very very keen and very supportive 
And um, I said to her, well, it'd bring people in, you know, to the hotel to get to know the hotel better. And you'd have people buying stuff over the weekend. So that first time I actually got the venue free, which was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, so we, we used three of their rooms and put on a sort of model of more like the Edinburgh Book Festival than, than most festivals, because the idea was to have events competing with each other rather than just a, a single stream that anybody could go to everything. Yes. I wanted it to feel like a festival where people have to run around from one event to another and have things clashing. And people got very cross about that. But it, it did mean that people got very excited and it was a good buzzy feel. Wow. So 2013. So how many... So obviously last year was a bit disrupted, but prior to that, yeah, sorry, a bit is a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Um, prior to that, what had you built to in 2019? How many speakers were you getting by comparison? I think it was 39 events over the weekend um, in the, the hotel, but we also had, we, we got chosen for a tourism grant through the Arts Council. They were looking for four events, cultural related events, in Suffolk and Norfolk, and they chose us as one of the four. It could have been anything. It could be theatres, museums, um, anything culturally related. So we were we were very privileged to be chosen as one of the four cultural events to showcase East Anglia, basically. And we got a grant from them in 2018 and 19, which meant that we could really put on a lot of extra things. So we had, you know, storytelling walks in the woods. We had a poetry juke shop in a beach hut um, we had a writing workshops in a shipping container and um, we we put on a lot of uh, storytelling along the beach with a storyteller who was uh, making wooden dolls while he told the stories of the characters and so on so we were able to do build up to quite a lot in 2018-19 so 2020 was a shock yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just leading up to just concluding that bit about 2019, um, you effectively had doubled the size from 2013 up to 2019. And also doubled the places where we were. I mean, we were in um, Martello Tower, for example, I mentioned the woods, shipping containers, beach huts, the garden, seaside gardens, the beach, you know, we were all over the place. Yeah. Uh, bakery. Um, <laughs> made bread babies, and the storyteller told the story of a bread baby in the bakery, for example. So we've gone out of the venue as well, all over the place. Which is lovely because that covers the breadth of what goes on in Felix, though, I guess. Yeah, we were down at the ferry in the sailing club and, some, and the church there and so on. Yeah, which is lovely because obviously perhaps people may have one view of Felixstowe, whether it's the commercial side of the port or they're familiar with the town or they know the beach. But actually, when you put all those different places to good use, yeah. then you're getting a much better awareness. We were in the fort as well, and um, even on the Harwich Ferry, so <laughs> all over the place. Fantastic. Oh, well, that's that's just great. So that was obviously what took you up to 2019 and it had grown significantly to that point. But obviously last year was a completely different challenge for you. How did you cope with that? Because I guess you were very significantly into your planning. We kept hoping that it would go away and it didn't. Mm. So in the end, we had to cancel everything that was live and 
our social media team, Hot Gossip, suggested that we might put a few events online, which we did. I think we had seven in total, plus some little videos that authors kindly recorded in their own homes about how they were writing, what, how the lockdown had affected them, etc. And we put that out over the weekend and we had an astonishing response. I mean, we had some events had about 5,000 people watching. I mean, they were free, which helped. <laughs> but we did have an astonishing response and we had a Just Giving page and people were very generous, both with donations, but also with their comments on that as well. But you managed to still maintain some great content as well i mean i just recall george alagaya was just such a great speaker last year and and obviously he's going through his own sort of battles and so on at the moment too but i suspect that just the, the almost the change of scenery for us stuck at home last year um it was great to just be able to listen to some of these amazing stories and authors as they were bringing the accounts of how they were coming to their their writing and what was provoking the, the thoughts uh, that, that led to them putting pen, pen to paper. So you had some great speakers nonetheless. It's interesting though that they were all very determined that they weren't going to write about COVID. And has that changed in the last year as you've been speaking with authors and literary agents? Do they now feel it's something they've got to deal with or because it hasn't concluded yet, they don't feel they can write about it? Well, the only thing I've heard was one person who said, well, they were finding it difficult to know where to place their novel because they couldn't pretend that it wasn't happening, but they didn't want to actually make it something they were writing about. So where, where did they actually put, what year did they put their, you know, their current novel in? But otherwise, no, I haven't heard that anybody's sort of on chapter six of the book. <laughs> Yeah, I suspect there is just that waiting to see how it's all going to materialise and then probably we'll get a better perspective when we can look back on it rather than at the moment we still feel as though we're impacted by it, I guess. So how are you uh, dealing with this year then? How is that all going to be addressed? Well, not knowing what was going to happen, I thought we kind of have a very much pared down live programme and a bigger online programme in the hope that both could happen, which so far touch wood they are. Um, that was interesting because some speakers that I approached immediately said, oh yes, yes, we'll come to Felix, no, that's fine. And I was thinking, oh, good. <laughs> and some were saying, no, no, we think live events won't happen. We'll come if we can be online, but definitely only online. We've got some people like Anthony Horowitz who we normally can't have because He's usually in Greece, but he's because he could be online, we were able to have him. Or, or same thing for Richard Dawkins, not that he would normally be in Greece as far as I know, but you know, he was willing to do it because he could be online. And then there were a few people who very kindly said, Well, you know, if you want us there, fine, and if you want us online, fine. So yeah, so we finished up with more events online than live, but we have got both programs going. Mm. So how many um activities and events have you have you got scheduled in that, that period of time? There's about 10 that are in real life. <laughs> online on Friday and another two, four, six, seven on Saturday online and two, four, six, seven, um, well, eight if you can to workshop online over the weekend. Yeah, so, amazing. Yeah, it's, if you feel like 
nine o'clock on Saturday online to seven o'clock on Saturday and Sunday morning, 10.30 till seven again, plus a couple on Friday and um, basically 10 till about six in the live programme plus a band on Saturday evening. Yeah, well, that's quite a quite a range of activities. So the great thing is anyone who's listening to this, wherever they are in the world, they can dial in and uh, and book tickets, can't they? So They can dial in and book tickets. And also they can, if they're looking at me online, they've got till the 11th of July to actually view it. Ah. Book the tickets by the festival weekend before the event goes out. We'll put a link to how people can do that um, through our podcast website. So so that people can follow that if they're interested in finding out some more and, and being able to book. Um, but just talk me through your, I mean, obviously this all started with you, but um, it's not, you've got a whole team of people now working with you, haven't you? Yes, we're all volunteers, but we have you know, somebody who, as you know, liaises with the sponsors, the business sponsors, Jan. Um, we've got Stephen who helps sometimes with things like the, uh, grant applications that are rather chasing money one way and another. Yeah. Um, Jez, who does all the figures for us. So, yeah, there is um, Imogen who writes uh, our newsletters and so on. And then coming up to the festival, we do hire in companies such as Hot Gossip, who are doing our social media professionally for us, and Rachel Sloan, of course, who does our PR. Yeah, yeah. You've built this wonderful team around you who are all uh, who all see your vision and your purpose, which is really quite remarkable how you've built that in just such a short space of time. We call ourselves a working party. We refuse to call ourselves a committee. So. Oh, yes, very wise. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, committees tend not to do anything. <laughs> so. Advice I got when I was trying asking various people like festivals, other festivals, bookshops, etc., you know, when I was setting up, have you got any advice to give me? And the only piece of advice I was actually given was don't have a committee, you'll never get one. <laughs> so that then leads me to ask, how do you come up with the authors and the contacts who you, who inv- you invite to come along? Well, there's various ways. Obviously, some authors just get in touch and say, you know, we'd like to do it. Um, which can be lovely and can also be embarrassing if they don't fit the profile of what we need that year and you're trying very carefully not to offend them and you know get the bad press out there and otherwise there are people that we've been in contact with for a long time who either recommend us to other people or come back themselves um esther freud who was our first patron has been absolutely brilliant and for example this year she's invited jojo moise who's a friend of hers she invited uh um, sorry, Louise, I'm trying to think of people. I can never think of people's surnames when I need them. Yeah, I'm like you, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's gone completely. And Tracy Chevalier, who wrote um, The Girl with the Pearl Earring, she was invited by Esther as well. Louise Doughty, that's Scottish. We just have to wait a minute, don't we? Yes, it, it drops eventually. <laughs> so, for example, she's invited some of her friends, like those three people I've just mentioned. She's suggested a lot of other people. In a normal year, she'd invite me to tea in Wobbleswick in her lovely kitchen. We'd sit and discuss, you know, what kind of themes we had and who we might 
invites, but that hasn't obviously happened this year. I think you saw the Martin Bell interview last year. It was introduced to me by Terry Waite, who became a festival patron as well, for example. All got relationships with different publishers. Um, in particular, we've got quite a lot of Quirkus order authors this year because we built up a relationship with their publicists. Bloomsbury, we've used a lot of Faber as well. And of course, we've got Toby Faber actually coming to the festival this year, which is really exciting. You know, the speakers that you've had, um, whether they're high profile or not, I just always find so, so interesting. And um, I've just found it really helpful to almost expand my knowledge by sitting in someone's talk who I would generally not have gone out and bought their book. Um, so it exposes you to people who or thoughts or writing that you otherwise wouldn't have necessarily picked off the shelf. So you do a remarkable job in getting some of those people along. So it's um, it's good to see you've got Terry Waite coming back again this year. So he's going to be one of your live speakers, I understand. Is that right? He set off the whole festival on Saturday, Saturday 26th of June at 10 o'clock at Harvest House. And yep. such a good speaker. You know, I sort of said, do you want to be interviewed or not? And in the end, we did decide that he would be interviewed. But he could talk, you know, hours and keep you in trance. Oh, it's great. And, and of course, the other uh, speaker who we, we've interviewed and will be part of this conversation is, is Ian Dale as well, who, again, just comes with a, a lovely message of just people having different views, but just getting on. Yes. Why can't we just get on with it, isn't it, he says. And also he's written this or edited this new book about all the prime ministers, which is fascinating. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, again, fascinating character and a lovely addition to your um, speaking lineup as well. So the Harvest House move. Um, so I guess that was probably something that you just because of circumstances, you're having to make a change. Um, the Orwell decided that because of COVID, they were not comfortable with hosting us after all, I have to say, late in the day. So uh, that was rather a panic because I've got everybody booked. We were selling tickets. <laughs> oh, no. We were three days into selling our tickets and we didn't have a venue. But we had done one event at Harvest House. Uh, it must have been 2019. We had um, Sally Vickers, who indeed is coming back to us this time as well, and Amanda Craig on an evening just to expand the venues that we were using. And because and Harvest House was such an interesting venue, so we, we'd had that then. And uh, they had just got a license for weddings, which fitted in beautifully. And I got in touch with them and they said immediately, well, we've got a committee meeting tomorrow morning. And if everybody else agrees, yes. And so by the next day, we were installed in Harvest House. Fantastic. Very, very beautiful, very interesting venue, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. For helpful and lovely so oh great oh that's brilliant yeah well for anyone who grew up in Felixstowe as I did um so my my father used to work there when it was a fight when it was Fison's office and um yeah so there was this lovely thing at Christmas all the children of the employees would be invited along to a Christmas party so we would all sort of sweep in and consume our body weight in jelly and ice cream and all sorts of things so yeah it will be um it'll be lovely to set foot inside the doors again was that in the ballroom 
I suspect so. Uh, when you're sort of seven or eight years old, you don't sort of put a name on those things. So I just remember this enormous venue and just being room after room that all seemed huge. Um, I was a bit smaller then, I suppose. But uh, yeah, and, and of course, it's previous history before as a hotel and so on. It's just an astonishing venue. So that'll be a lovely place to, to see people in. Yeah, great. And and yes, I, you have to feel probably for the Orwell who have obviously been having to work on things at very short notice. And I guess they probably had to just make a decision as to how they were going to cope with guests and so on. So, yeah, it's great that you've ended with a good location. So how do you see things developing, um, Meg? You know, what's the you've come this far in such a short space of time? Well, you know, obviously everything is dependent on where where we all go, isn't it? But publishers have done very well, some of them, um, because people have turned a lot more to reading. So I think the festival will look different, but hopefully with as many at least events. And I think maybe using a lot of different venues, hopefully Harvest House would have us back if we behave ourselves very well. Also, I mean, you know, I mentioned using Felixstowe Ferry venues before. Then, of course, there's the Two Sisters Art Centre out at Trimley. So I suppose we could spread from Trimley to Felixstowe Ferry. Well, it's it really has come on a long way. So let's just talk about how it's funded. So obviously some of it is from ticket purchases and online you you need those too, don't you, because of the cost of putting everything on. So, And you've had some support from the Arts Council. Not this year, no. We didn't apply for an expensive grant this year. Um, that's a very long and difficult process. Basically, didn't feel able to cope with it this year. So we've got we have a, a, a grant from the town Felixstowe Town Council each year, and also Suffolk County Council have uh, chipped in. And then otherwise, we're incredibly grateful and dependent on our business sponsors. Yeah, yeah. Which, which again, you do have some positives there in the sense of, you know, the port and obviously firms like us who see, see the Felixstowe connection as being quite important. But I, I guess the numbers still have to stack up for you, though. You know, there is a commercial aspect to all of this, isn't there? Yes, so we're very grateful to anybody who buys tickets, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons we wanted to get this out is because it's just such a remarkable um occasion both i just feel it's there's such a buzz as you you used that word earlier in the in the venues um but also just how this has come from nothing in such a short space of time i just feel you just have done a, a wonderful job uh, and and your working party not committee <laughs> that surrounds you as well so no it's very very good um it, genuinely though uh, is this is there pressure because of not being able to have live activities? Does it make things harder? There's tremendous pressure because we promised that we would be socially distanced this year, whatever the government was up to, um, because we felt that people were coming out maybe for the first time mm. and they would feel more secure if we said, look, it's one third capacity, you know, we're we will, you will be socially distanced, you will, there will be masks, you will be, there will be sanitizers, and etc. So, of course, that has cut our income down tremendously because yeah. the capacity in our biggest venue of 200, we've got a capacity of 80. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and then there's all sorts of extra expenses, obviously, in terms of you know the cleaning and all the rest of it, and and extra. I think poor Stephen, who does who coordinates our weekend volunteers, which I should have mentioned, because of course we have a lot of people who turn out at the weekend to take tickets on the door. In this case, to stop people parking at Harvest House where they're not allowed to, <laughs> that kind of thing. But he was, you know, he's got a, a huge challenge because between there's half an hour between each event, mm. and we don't sanitize the chairs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, in in that time, so. Yeah, it has it has made a huge impact. And then, you know, there's the issue of whether people are going to do book signings and how we organise that so that they are, uh, you know, so the author and the people having the book signed feel okay about it. Stillwater Books is going to have a bookstore at the venue. Um, but there's, there's the whole issue of people, you know, going around the venue has been, we've had to think out in great detail. Mm. So, there's a sort of one-way systems and people can be kept socially distanced. But it does seem as though now probably we're going, that's going to still be the, the ruling anyway, but we thought we would do it and be clear. Yeah. yeah, very wise. Well, you've obviously made all the right decisions there, I think, in view of how, how things are looking at the moment. So yeah, it's very, very good. Well, I, I, yeah, I just want to say thank you, Meg, for just coming up with the idea on that long drive back from Cambridge. <laughs> and for just your sheer enthusiasm and determination to get it off the ground and and keep it going because that's no small thing well thank you for i mean you've been supporting since we met at a networking event didn't we you were doing yeah in kesgrave and said hey i'm running a book festival would you like to give us some money <laughs> I've never been back to that networking event ever since because I just thought <laughs> it can't top that. <laughs> you remember the year when we had a lot of difficulties with our projectors and things, and you were hands on all over the all over. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, it helped us to understand what you were trying to do. So it was um, it was great. It's been it's been a joy to be involved, and you know that we're all about education and trying to communicate that within Suffolk. So. Yeah, uh, you do a great work, not just in the festival, but obviously the work that goes into schools and so on, that's all in connection with that. And that's one of the reasons why, yeah, it's a real joy to be able to support it in just a small way, because we recognise that you've got a very much bigger purpose and objective than, um, than what the we could help you deliver, but you get so many people involved. That's a really, really great tribute to you. Thank you. I appreciate, obviously, your interest and support. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Well, thanks for your time, Meg. It's been lovely to catch up and understand about the history and what you've got planned for this year. And, well, if you should be in a position to do a similar thing next year, we'll catch up with you then. <laughs> but most importantly, we hope to see you on the last weekend of the month. Yes, look forward to that. That'd be great. So the Phoenix Day Book Festival runs from the 25th to the 27th of June with various other activities in the lead up to that and you will find the details on their website. Please do give whatever support you're able as this is one of the wonderful grassroots activities that has sprung up in Suffolk over the last few years. At Kingsfleet Wealth we've been delighted to be able to support them and indeed this podcast. So thank you for listening to the Suffolk Money Podcast. We hope that we will have you joining us in the very near future.